Um, so my privilege to pray for Willie. And what we're about today is we always try to recognize the treaty. Um, don't let it pass by because our strong belief that we are Bible-believing, God-believing descendants are descendants of what happened, that incredible thing that happened in 1840, and that God was such a part of that, and that we are the recipients of that incredible time in history uh, of our nation. And so, um, yeah, let's, I'll pray for you, uh, Willie, if you'd come up, please. So, Lord, we do thank you for this man, and we thank you um, that he is amongst us, and what he brings today, and uh, what you have done on the coast, what you have done on the coast, and what you're doing on the coast, because uh, we worship a living God, and it's not philosophy, it's not uh, principles, it's not ideas, it's not rules, but uh, we worship a living God who continues to build his church and build his kingdom. And so we pray for this man today. Uh, speak to us today uh, through him. Jesus, we pray. Amen. Greetings, you all. Um, It's a privilege to be here. It's always a privilege to come into a congregation, a gathering of the Lord's people, and be asked to speak. Um, So thank you. My thank you was first, first of all, to the Lord for allowing this opportunity, opportunity, for opening the door um, to the leaders of your church, uh, for inviting me here, and the absolute privilege that it is to be here. And most of all, for all of you, uh, with open hearts, uh, to be here and listen to what I have to say. When... (laughs) When Carl first asked me to speak about the Treaty of Waitangi, there are so many ways that I could have approached it. Um, had he wanted a historian, he would have gone to my cousin, Monty Suter. Had he wanted a politician, he would have asked a politician. Uh, had he wanted someone else, he would have, he would have asked some other, someone else. Um, but he's asked me. And so uh, today, I'm going to give you a very, very personal view on the Treaty of Waitangi. And to give you a personal view on the Treaty of Waitangi, I've got to tell you who this person is standing before you. So I'm going to try and wrap up 60 years in about five minutes. (laughs) This gives me 12 years per minute, so we're going to be pretty quick. Okay. I'm a child born in the 50s, end of the 50s. Child of the 60s. And I grew up in a time of relative prosperity in New Zealand. 
Uh, the economy was booming, farming was subsidized by everything, the, uh, the Korean War had just finished, everyone was, uh, was actually quite prosperous. My brother, my sisters and I went to school on the East Coast and we did okay. And we loved our rugby and watched the All Blacks on our black and white TVs. And so we were just like the rest of the happy little Kiwis in Kiwi land. And we were told by our, our Prime Minister and uh, our political leaders at the time, that we're in a nation was the, that was the leading light for race relationships in the whole world. And in my life, my dad and all his siblings uh, were fluent Māori speakers. That was uh, the, the language they spoke at home. That was the language, the first language that they learned was te reo Māori. Um, he didn't speak Māori to us very often. Um, the language we learned was by ear, by listening to him speak to his siblings uh, and to those of his generation. And his generation had been told that the only way to prosper in this land was to give up your language and learn English. So he never formally taught us uh, the language that I have is from him by ear at that stage. So we attended all our, uh, the usual hui, the tangihanga, the birthdays, the weddings and everything that people still at times hold on our marae. And uh, we got to know our tikanga and our reo. 1969, we moved away from the East Coast and we moved to a foreign land. We moved to a foreign land. Central North Island. <laughs> Central North Island. And once we got there, I realized that the prosperity that I thought we lived in was actually poverty in their eyes. Uh, when you don't have a, a whole, a big world view uh, from where you are, you're actually quite content. You're actually quite content. So my, my view that we were a prosperous, we were a prosperous family living in, living on the, you know, the high, the high points of everything where it was, was absolutely shattered. Uh, to know that what we, you know, I had, I think I had one set of clothes and that was that. Okay. And there were these other ones, hey, they didn't close every day. That was, that was quite, quite, a, quite an eye-opener for me. Um, so I found myself all of a sudden from being the same as everyone else to being in a very, very small minority uh, within New Zealand. And that was a big eye-opener. The All Blacks and Rugby Union, uh, they still, con uh, still uh, continue to agree with South Africa and its apartheid policies. I learned this when I went to school. By 1970, uh, with the, the All Black Tour, they made the Māoris honorary whites to allow them into South Africa to play. That's our, that was the Rugby Union, and that's how our country thought at the time. Still propounding that we were uh, the leading light of race relations throughout the world. Did it encroach on my hero worship of the All Blacks? Not a bit. Still watched them. Loved it. Uh, I went to another school, uh, predominantly immigrant people into the uh, central North Island who became, became dairy farmers. And the language choices at my new school were French, Latin, and German. No Māori. No Māori. The irony was my English teacher was the only member of the staff who was Māori. And he was from the East Coast. 
His name was Wuli Ka. He later became an academic in Māori tanga, Māori language, and has written several books. And he's a wonderful, still a wonderful leader uh, amongst us in Ngāti Whoro. And that's how things were. And um, so the next five years of my life, I became disconnected from the world I grew up in. Uh, apart from Christmas holidays, when I went back and uh, mingled with the 2,000 cousins back home in our papakainga with my nan. And she uh, was probably one of the, the heaviest influences on my upbringing in that she, her English wasn't very strong, so she tended to speak a lot of Māori to me. Um, she also had this habit of, when we stayed at her place, um, the girls, every Sunday she'd get them together, brush their hair back so hard and tie it up so tight they'd all have Chinese eyes, shine us up, spit and polish us, and brush our feet with a scrubbing brush until it was either, they were either clean or they bled, whichever came first, and lead us all off to school, Sunday school, church. Had to go to church. Anglican church at that time. The Treaty of Waitangi played absolutely no place in my life at that time. Had no part whatsoever. Never even knew about it. Um, and I don't think I spent many minutes contemplating about what it, may, uh, what, what it meant or uh, what its existence had in my life. And I was in an education, education system in New Zealand where history started. This is one of my favourite topics. But history, when I was at school, started in 1769 with the arrival of Captain Cook. Everyone of my generation learned history and it started then. 1769. Uh, the missionaries, their job was to stop us from eating, eating each other into oblivion. And the, uh, the culture of the time gave us the generous gift of civilization and classed us off as savages in dire need of education and relief from the heavy responsibilities of properly managing the land that we had so negligently refused to harvest for personal or national gain. That was my education. Um, after that, 1969, I moved back to the coast and found myself disconnected from where I'd grown up. And weirdly, or not so weirdly, I suppose, uh, I found myself more able than the most of my uh, friends who I'd grown up with. Uh, more able to engage with the, with the education system uh, and with the systems that were in place at the time. Uh, the Treaty of Waitangi's greatest impact in my life in those, in those years, my mid-teens and early 20s, was as a public holiday. And that, that started in, in 1974. And that's how I viewed the Treaty of Waitangi, a holiday. And that was my understanding of it, a public holiday. And I see a lot of people laughing and, uh, and smiling, and they probably think, yep, that's how I look at it now too. <laughs> but um, I became the standard native product of the system and the values of that time. I'm talking about the 1970s, uh, the early 1970s, through the protest movements and all of those things. University was never even considered as an option uh, when I was at school, if you were a Māori on the East Coast. University wasn't even in the, wasn't even in view. I remember a uh, a careers trip. They took us on to Auckland. We looked at Crownland potteries. We looked at the Tip Top ice cream factory, and they took us to the wharf. And maybe we could have gotten a job there. 
That was the creation. So the other option was follow the road of my ancestors, join the army, become a soldier. And that's what I chose. That's what I chose. Uh, largely it was to escape, escape from home. I think most teenagers want that. Yeah, I'm out of here. And I joined the army. Spent five years in the army. But the actuality of the army was something uh, uh, wasn't, wasn't what I was seeking. Uh, by the time I was 13 at home, I had, um, as I said, I became a product uh, of the system. Uh, by that time, I was binge drinking. I was working hard, getting my own money, spending on as much booze as I can, uh, as I could possibly find, um, as a lot of the teenage young people at that time were looking for. Yeah. Wine, woman, and song, that was it. Okay. Not particularly in that order, but that's what the things we did. And was heavily into it. Uh, the army life didn't actually uh, iron it out. They made it worse. Uh, they had a culture of drinking within the army at that, at that stage where the measure of man was how much you could drink, and that was just straight up the line of what, uh, what they were doing at home. Uh, and that's where I was, and I was very, very good at it. So that was my life for a while. Left the army, uh, found myself as a, a national park ranger in the Uruwera, and for a little while I was there, I was content there, running around in the bush. Uh, it was great. Uh, and then the economy of the 1980s started collapsing. I think um, Rogenomics started selling everything off. And it led me to go to look to uh, further horizons. And I shot over to Australia for a three-week holiday and stayed there for 10 years. But... It didn't make anything any better. I don't know what I was searching for. I did not know what I was searching for, what I was looking for. All I could find, all I found was myself deeper and deeper into, into the rut of booze. Added onto the booze was all the other substances that you could find where I was living in King's Cross at the time, running around in the big, huge city of Sydney, uh, and finding myself getting more and more tangled up and lost. I came to a point... Uh, a very, very low point in, in, that, um, in that part of my life. And was my good fortune, I thought at the time, God's hand I can see from now. I met a wonderful, wonderful woman who pulled me out. Who pulled me out. I married that woman in Australia, and I insisted that we got married in a church, uh, which was against the, uh, against the grain of what everyone was doing at that time. Um, I could see, looking back, in hindsight, the influence of my grandmother in insisting that we go to church on Sunday and these are the values you have, boy. You don't just take this woman, you marry her. And you marry her in the eyes of God. And so that was my... Uh, we, we, we started uh, our life together in Australia. And then came the next tumultuous thing, children children. And with children came my search for identity. And here's where it comes becomes a, a bit more uh, uh, about the Treaty of Waitangi. Because when, you, when you're searching for your identity, we tend to look, without knowing God, you tend to look at the things around you, you look at your culture, you look at the physical side of things. And so my search for identity started with me uh, 
recapturing the, the, the language that I had, uh, building it up again. I joined and ended up running uh, a Māori culture club in Wollongong, south of, uh, south of Sydney, called Ngā Hauwe Whaa, and uh, ran that club for, for a few years. That didn't satisfy this need for identity that, um, uh, that was growing within me. I came back for the 50th anniversary of the presentation of the VC to my father's brother, Mona Nuiakiwa, which was held in Rutoria in 1993. Uh, being engulfed once more in my own culture, my own language, surrounded by my own whanauna and tūpuna, instilled in me this huge desire. As I flew out of Gisborne, I looked back, and Hikurangi, the Taumata, the peaks of Hikurangi, were above the clouds. And I knew then, I'm coming back. Got to Australia, got a job on the oil rigs, worked as hard as I could for the next two years, and moved my family back to Rutoria. Um, in Rutoria, I had the, once more, the circumstances were great. My father was still alive. My, my, uh, my aunties, who were absolutely fluent, were still alive and working. I picked my language up to a level um, that I have now and, uh, and continue to work with. I enrolled in a, in a university degree course for Māori language. I came back with the papers after the first course and showed my father and he laughed. He said, what's that language? What's that language? So I threw those papers away and just spent more time with him. Okay. Um, and, that's, and that's where it was. My, uh, one of my cousins who was uh, establishing the, helping establish the Kurakaupapa Māori o Tumwaiu, it's a totally immersion school in Rotoria at the time, had asked me, why did you come home? I said, I came back to bring my, uh, my kids back here so uh, they could learn who they are. They could learn who they are. And he said to me, well, who do you think is going to teach them? I said, well, you guys at the Kuda. He said, you know who's there? Me. And a couple of others. He said, come along. That started uh, some 20 years ago. That was the start of my teaching career. Um, went and did the, 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 the teacher's course, and I've been, uh, been there ever since. And with it came an absolute obsession to seek out this cultural identity. Um, I've spoken on Marae from the north to the south. I've been all over the place. I've taken the kids everywhere uh, in New Zealand. Um, I speak at various hui and marae all over, uh, all over the Taira Fiti. And that's where I thought I was going. And Kurakaupapa have been established, as I saw, to fulfill the promises of the Treaty of Waitangi. I've studied the Treaty of Waitangi for years. Absolutely years. I've looked at it, I've taught it. Um, 
So forgive me when I speak about the articles. I, 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 I take it as a given that everyone knows what the articles, like Jacinda, <laughs> knows what the articles of the treaties are all, of the treaty are all about. Um, and I looked at it as a, as a struggle to, to maintain our identity as Māori within our own country. The promises of the treaty. And that's how I was, and I went, I went on that track uh, with a... When I get my, uh, my... set my heart on doing something, I do it totally, and I go fully. And so that's how I was. Around 2000, 2011, my father became sick. He became ill with cancer. Um, and I spent a lot of time with him. Uh, he's quite different to me, as fathers are. Um, and every time we'd go and see him, he would say to me, Mietia mai karakia, say a prayer for me. I said, well, I don't know, we need prayers. So I'd say the Lord's Prayer for him in Māori. He said, Mietia mai karakia. I would, uh, look, I don't know any prayers. I don't know any prayers. I would try and pray. Uh, and if you, if you can think back to a time where you didn't know God, it's quite difficult to pray. Quite difficult. And my good fortune, I, I, I met Jenny, and she gave me uh, this, this book with a whole lot of prayer in it. And I looked up all the Māori ones, and every time Dad said, Mia, my hair, I'd go in and I'd read one of these ones out of the, out, out of the book. I said, well, I got you, Dad. Uh, after a while, they came, became, became tired of hearing the same prayer, and he said, And so we went on. Uh, it got to the point where he was close to passing in 2013. And in close to passing, in terms of Māori tanga, it comes, it comes down to this. is the passing on of the mantle from the father down to the son or sons. So the Māori tanga and the mana that he had was supposedly handed down to my brother and myself. And we were getting close to that point. And at a tangihanga is the full expression of Māoridom. From the karanga, ngā whai kōrero, the karakia, the manākitanga, looking after all the manuhiri, and a whole lot of responsibilities. 5 a.m., 27th of January, 2013, I woke up with a voice telling me, there is no God without the Messiah. And it was so clear. There is no God without the Messiah. It was the first thing. The next thing he said was, be strong in upholding the word of God. So, oh, what's going on here? I'd never had that experience before. It was something completely new to me. And yet it was as clear as anyone speaking to me, in fact clearer, because it resounded right through me. I woke my wife up, who had been born again for the last decade, and which I totally tried to ignore, and said, don't bring God in this house. I'm talking about all these atua and stuff like that. Don't bring God in this house. I said to her, who's the Messiah? And she goes, oh, it's Jesus. And she rolled over and went back to sleep. <laughs> and then 
Five seconds later, she jumped up and said, what did you just say? What did you just say? I said, someone's yelling in my head, this big, huge voice is going, there's no God without the Messiah. Who's the Messiah? Tell me. And from there, became, it was a hugely turbulent time. My father died that afternoon. Um, the responsibilities of all the arrangements for his funeral, um, everything fell on me. My older brother was away at the time. And this is what happened. Absolutely everything, everything absolutely everything that, uh, uh, that I did, I did with, with certainty, I did with surety, during the whole day, arranged everything, all the finances, everything was taken care of. Everyone come and see me, I'd go, do this, come and do that, come and do that. And that went through the whole day, while I, we greeted all the manuhiri who came, my father was fairly well known, and this went on all day. Came to the evening, and what happened, I couldn't go to sleep. All, uh, all during the night, my whole life was replayed. From the start, from when I was a child, right up to that, that present time. But it was replayed like this, with the knowledge, with a sure and certain knowledge of the truth. Of the truth. My whole viewpoint on everything had totally changed. My world had been turned right side up. People say it's turned upside down, it's not. It's turned the right side up. And so everything changed. And how, we get back to the topic... A whole lot of things happened. Three days, three nights, this happened. I was quoting scripture. I never read the, I hadn't, I hadn't read the Bible. I'd say to my wife, what does this mean? It's this, it's this, it's this. How do you move mountains? You do it like this, you do it like this. And she's going, that's in the Bible, that's scripture. Da, 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 da. I had not read the Bible. Not yet. Uh, changed my life. As it does. As he does. So how does this change my perspective of the Treaty of Waitangi and how I had taught it and expounded to all these kids and as they were growing? How does this change my, my view of the Treaty of Waitangi? Well, one thing, is, one thing certain, absolutely certain, is this. It's a, the Treaty is a covenant between two parties. Well, more than two parties, actually. But we, as people, can't, couldn't even keep the covenant between God and ourselves. So, how do we expect, as people, to keep the covenant between one nation and another? It's never going to happen. The intent of the Treaty of Zaitangi was, and still is, to maintain the identity of Māori in their own land, and that's in the second article. And that's why Māori signed it. The process... Uh, was the, the ceding of sovereignty, sovereignty to the crown. And that's why the crown signed it. The moral justification, oh, sorry, that, the, the first bit was from the first article, and the moral justification of equality was given in the third article. And that's why everyone signed it. And Where does that stand as a document in giving the identity of us uh, to us as a people? Well, I refer to Genesis 10.5. And to me, the identity, the identity of a people can be taken from this. Genesis 10.5 is about the separating into nations. 
um, and though it comes before uh, chapter 11, it's referring to the, um, uh, the Tower of Babel and the separation afterwards. The peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. While the Treaty of Waitangi is the buffer zone in a collision of nations. Only 5% of the land that Māori were separated into is still in Māori hands. Everyone according to his language. 14.9% of New Zealand are Māori. And only 3.7% of all New Zealanders can hold a conversation in Māori. According to their families, into their nations, Māori families are at the wrong end of almost every demographic that you can think of. Māori as a nation continues to exist solely on the promises of the treaty and the people who hold the crown-appointed offices accountable to those promises. Solely. If it weren't for that treaty and the promises, the intent of the promises in it, and I will say this, the absolute guts of some of the people who have stood up uh, to hold, the, uh, hold our, our country accountable to those promises, uh, we as Māori would probably be non-existent. And I'll finish on the last article of the treaty, which is the promise of equality. And I have absolutely no notes on this. The promises of man, the covenants of man, are all tainted by the sin of man. They're all open to interpretation by man to see whatever he wants in them. If we're looking for equality, it's not to be found in a treaty written by men. The one truth is Christ. And it's only when we find ourselves on hands and knees in absolute humility at the foot of the cross and know that we, we, every single one of us, are responsible for him being on that cross we can know how low we are. But also looking up at that cross and receiving Christ and his redeeming blood and understanding the unfathomable unfathomable love of our Father that lifts us up. Not above anyone, but certainly not below anyone that we truly find equality. So when we give our hearts to Christ, uh, when we truly, truly look at each other as his second, in his second commandment, and let's put it another way in John, love each other as I have loved you, as I have loved you, love each other. We will find that equality. And the intent of the Treaty of Waitangi can actually be embodied. So, kia ora koutou. Nga mihi kia koutou katoa. Nga mihi kia koutou katoa.
nga papainga o te tatuariki kirungi a kau te katoa. May the blessings of our Lord be on all of you. Thank you. Thank you.